Paul and Barnabas had a dispute that ended up causing a split between them. Barnabas took John Mark with him to Cyprus. Paul took Silas back in the direction from whence they had come on their first missionary journey. Although they took a slightly different route to get back to those churches that they had visited in that first missionary journey, you'll recall. Instead of sailing to Cyprus as they had done in that first time, Paul and Silas went northwest overland into Cilicia, probably to his hometown of Tarsus before he moved on northward to Derby, where he found a disciple whose name was Timothy. Timothy joined Paul and Silas on that second missionary journey, moving on from Derby to Antiochus of Pisidia, and then further west, they came to Mylita, and then it was a question. What direction do we go? They thought perhaps they should go southward toward Ephesus. The Spirit of God forbid that. So they said, all right, let's see if we can go into Bithynia, to the north. The Spirit of the Lord forbade that. The only other option then was to continue westward, which they did. They arrived at Troas, the easternmost city in that continent then known as Asia Minor. And they took a ship and crossed over into Europe because Paul had a vision when he was in Troas of a man from Macedonia calling to him, come and help us. And so Paul believed that to be the Spirit of the Lord directing him to move in that direction. And it was. It resulted in their landing finally on the mainland in Philippi. Philippi is a Roman colony, very, very important city in Macedonia. It was one of only a very few Roman colonies, and it's, it's, as such, it was under the same laws as were obligatory within the city of Rome itself. It's believed that at that time, Claudius, the emperor, had made a command dictating that all Jews must leave Roman colonies and the city of Rome in particular. And so when Paul arrives in Philippi, it's believed that that's probably the reason that he found no synagogues there in this Roman colony of Philippi. But he met some women on the side of a river, witnessed to them, shared the gospel with them, and they became believers. Lydia, you remember, a seller of purple, a very wealthy woman, was the first convert in Europe. A woman is a first convert in Europe. Let that sink in. That was so, so very, very unusual for that particular time that a woman would be treated with such dignity. You know the story in Philippi. There became a bit of a problem because Paul cast out a demon from a young slave girl. It caused a stir. Paul and Silas were put in jail. And, of course, they began weeping, crying out to God, Oh, God, why did you do this to me? Well, that's my version of it, that the Bible says they were singing praises to the Lord. Amazing. Singing praises, worshiping God. They were just having a wonderful, wonderful time worshiping their Lord in prison with their, their legs bound in chains. They had been scourged. They were rejoicing. God is so good. 
And yes, he is. Because in that experience that they were having, worshiping the Lord, the earth began to shake. And an earthquake that did happen to open all the prison doors, loose their chains, they could have just walked out of that prison cell. It was around midnight. Nobody would have known. In fact, the jailer thought that they had, you recall. And so the jailer, knowing that if he let those prisoners free off with his head, he decided the safest way for him was to commit suicide, to get it over with now, because the Roman government, if they had found out about this, would surely do that to him. But Paul was aware of this and cried out to him, Don't harm yourself, we're all here. And don't you wonder how the Philippian jailer felt when he heard that news? Well, it turns out that the Bible tells us that he ran into the cell, fell to his knees and said, Men and brethren, how can I be saved? They were giving him the gospel message while they were in that prison cell and singing all of those psalms and wonderful praises to the Lord. He heard God's word and it touched his heart. And he knew that because of those circumstances, their God must be God. And he wanted to know how to get saved. They told him, believe in Jesus Christ. And you shall be saved, you and all your household. What a great promise that was by the Apostle Paul to include this man's household as well as himself in this offer of salvation that he was giving to him. And it was so that when he was released and they dressed the wounds, that Paul continued to witness to him and to his household, and they all were members of the body of Christ before he left Philippi. But he didn't leave Philippi right away. It wasn't until the morning that the magistrates had come and they had basically rethought the way things were going the previous day and they'd punished them enough. They figured, well, we'll just let these guys go. They've, they've, they've gotten the lesson. Well, Paul said, hey, wait a second, you can't do that because after all, we are Roman citizens and Roman citizens are not to be treated in that way. It was a very, very serious offense. Paul knew that. The magistrate knew it also, and they were shaking over the mistake that they had made. They had condemned a Roman citizen and punished him with scourging. Not supposed to happen. And that would result, if the Rome found out, of them losing their positions at least. So Paul ended up leaving with Silas after having kind of had fun with the magistrate. But he left a church behind. A church that had begun with Lydia and the jailer. And apparently he left perhaps Timothy, but for certain Luke. Oh, I forgot to mention, he picked up Luke in Troas before they crossed over the Adrian Sea. So his team has grown once he got to Philippi. Now he's going to leave Luke there to minister to this new church. And again, Timothy was probably left behind there as well for a season. But Paul apparently was making plans to go to the next stop, if you will, on his journey. And he apparently had decided that he was going to go to Thessalonica. The reason I say that they had decided that in advance is because, according to Paul, in his writing to the First Thessalonian Church, he mentions the fact that they sent on more than one occasion some relief for Paul, financial relief, from Philippi to Thessalonica while he was there that first time. 
that had to have been brought to him by Timothy. So they knew that he was going to Thessalonica. But he had a few cities to go through before he got there. And that's where chapter 17 kind of begins. It says in verse 1 of chapter 17, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, which, in which there was a synagogue of the Jews. Two possibilities that maybe the reason he just passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. One, there may not have been synagogues there, as, that, as was the case in Philippi. He may have just passed through because he was already planning to go all the way to Thessalonica. These were smaller communities, and Thessalonica happens to have been the provincial capital of Macedonia. If he goes to Thessalonica, he can have a greater impact on the entire region. And so I believe that probably Paul's thinking was, whatever communities I might pass through, they'll get the word of God to them eventually because we're going to start in the larger city and the word will spread from there to the entire region. And that's exactly what took place. If you read First Thessalonians, you'll see that that is the case indeed. We'll read some of First Thessalonians today, by the way, because I want to point out some of the things that Paul accomplished while he was there in that great city. But again, I wanted to mention to you that Thessalonica was a very important city. It was a provincial city, a capital. And because it was a capital, it didn't have the same privileges as Philippi did, but it had other very, very important privileges as a Roman capital of a district or a territory. They stood in Rome's favor. They were particularly important to Rome. It was there in Thessalonica that some of the great Roman battles that were won by Rome took place from that region. So Thessalonica is a very, very important place. You can go to Salonica today, which is today's name for that very place. It's still a city today, a large city as well, in Greece. And you can see some of the ruins of Thessalonica. It's a remarkable place. But Paul has gone there, and he found a synagogue of the Jews. Perfect, because that's precisely what Paul needed to see. He wanted to start there at a synagogue. And he found the synagogue, and it was a wonderful opportunity to share the Word of God with fellow Jews. His goal, his method was to go first to the Jews if he could because he believed that it was to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. They could help him in the ministry if he could convert them to Christ because they knew the Scriptures and they could be very instrumental in spreading the good news elsewhere. And so that's why he went to Thessalonica because there was a synagogue there. It was a great place to go because there were many people and many opportunities to spread the word of God. Verse 2 is an interesting verse to me because it says simply, Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them at the synagogue and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. 
He went into the synagogue, and it says he reasoned with them. And then in verse 3 it says, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. That's the Greek word for Messiah. This Jesus is the Messiah. The Jews knew what he meant. The Messiah was the one that they were expecting that God was to send. It was a promise of God in the Old Testament that one would be coming to sit on David's throne, to reign over the entire world from Jerusalem. He, Jesus, is that one. How did he prove it? How did he demonstrate it? How did he make that argument so plain and so obvious from the Scriptures? It tells us again, he went into them in verse 2, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them, From the Scriptures, that's the Old Testament Scriptures. There were no New Testament Scriptures written by then. In fact, it's very likely that the earliest of the New Testament Scriptures was written by Mark. And then the first letter that we have in the New Testament of Paul was written to the Thessalonian church. These events are happening somewhere in the neighborhood of 54 or 55 A.D. So there's no New Testament that he can refer to. He's basing his entire doctrine on the fact that the Old Testament speaks of Jesus Christ. I've had Christians that we pose a question to from time to time. Can you... lead somebody to Christ from just the Old Testament Scriptures. And I've heard many uh, good Bible-believing Christians say, no, that's not possible. Paul did it. Why is it not possible for us if Paul was able to do it? He was able to do it, and so are you and I. But you need to know what the Scriptures say. But Jesus made it so very clear Himself when He talked about Him being revealed throughout all of the Scripture, the Old Testament Scriptures. He said to the Pharisees and scribes, search the Scriptures and see, they speak of me. All of Moses, all of the prophets, all of the law speak of Christ. You just need to know where to find it. Fortunately, Paul did. I submit to you that all of us here should also know that. Where do you go in the Old Testament to see Christ? It's a good study. I'll mention just a few. Psalm 22. Psalm 39. Isaiah 52. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 50. Isaiah 6. Isaiah 7. Isaiah 9. Isaiah was one of Jesus' favorite. But you can also find him in Leviticus. Jesus also loved the book of Leviticus. How could that be? Leviticus, that's such a dry, oh, terrible book, all about law. Well, that it is. But it all points to Christ. Every bit of it. You just need the Spirit of God to reveal that truth. That's what He's there for. 
He is in you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, to reveal what the Scriptures say. Remember when Jesus spoke on the Sermon on the Mount. He would say, you have heard it said, and then he would talk about what the Pharisees and scribes had said. Thou shalt not kill, repeating the law, obviously, but other things that they would say. You've heard it said by them. And then he would say, but I say... In other words, what they were saying was correct, but they were limited to the letter of the law, and Jesus was revealing the spirit of the law. And so when you look at the Old Testament Scriptures, you need to look at the Old Testament Scriptures through the lens of the Spirit of God. And he does reveal. That's what Paul was doing. And again, he was reasoning with them. There's there's a dialogue going on. And he's explaining to them. He's letting them know that, look, this is what the Scriptures say. And then he was demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer. Demonstrating was to prove that what he was sharing with them had to happen. Isaiah 53 had to happen. Christ had to die. It's all written there. In fact, the Gospel that Paul preached, Christ came, Christ died, Christ raised from the dead. That's the Gospel message. And he says, the Scriptures have revealed those things to us. And it is necessary for anyone, Jew or Gentile, to come to an understanding of what the Scriptures say with regard to Christ's life, death, and burial, and resurrection. Because if you don't have all of that as a foundation, you must not yet understand the power of God in your life and the willingness of God to save and to redeem and to sanctify and to glorify His children, to call us His own. The Bible says we like sheep have gone astray. The Bible says the fool, is, the fool says in his heart there is no God. The Bible says the natural man cannot understand the things of the Lord. They are spiritually discerned. Paul is opening their eyes to the spiritual realm, that which they needed to understand. They had the letter of the law. They had a zeal for God, but they denied the power of God. They did not know the whole truth. They had only pieces of it. And you can't get very far in this walk of faith if you only have a few pieces of what the Word of God says. My friends, it's so important for all of us to be students of the Word of God. Every one of us, not just the pastor, but every one of us, should study the Word of God to show himself or herself worthy. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed. I don't want to be ashamed when I stand before him. I'm going to stand before him, and so are you. And when I do, I want to hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want to be ashamed of my having not known what I should have known. Having not done what I should have done. Having not lived the way I should have lived. And you can't do any of that right unless you have a good, solid foundation on the Word of God. Paul was expressing that. He reasoned with them. He explained it to them. He demonstrated that Christ had to suffer. That's something that you need to take into consideration. It wasn't that 
maybe it was a good idea for him to do so, he had to go down that path. And he himself said that. Luke records for us, for our benefit, that when Jesus was heading toward Jerusalem, he set his face toward Jerusalem like a flint. He was determined. He kept on telling his disciples over and over again during those early years that he spent with them, my time has not yet come. But when they approached Jerusalem, his changing of those words was simple. My time has come. This is it. This is the time that God has prescribed. This is the time that I have spent my entire life on this earth since I was born. I was intended to be this one that was going to die and suffer so greatly for all of you but doing it willingly because I saw glory beyond the cross. Paul said that had to happen. He had to suffer. He had to rise again from the dead. If he did not rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. We're still in our sins. You see how important all of this is. Paul was demonstrating this to these Jews and Gentiles alike in the synagogue at Thessalonica. Oh, I would have loved to have been there to hear him speak on these things. Verse 4 says, And some of them were persuaded. Not all. Not a lot of them. But some of the Jews were persuaded. But the Gentiles, look at what it says, a great multitude of the devout Greeks or Gentiles, and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. The church has been born. A few Jews have believed. Many Gentiles have come to faith. Can you imagine what it might have been for Paul as he's talking about these things? Jesus Christ came. Just as the Word of God says. Here's in in the Word of God where it talks about Christ coming. Christ had to die. Here's where it says in the Word of God that Christ had to die. Christ had to be raised from the dead. Here's what it says in the Word of God that Christ had to be raised from the dead. The Gentiles are hearing this and they're wondering, okay, He came to save us from our sins. He died for that purpose. He was raised from the dead to prove that all of that has taken place for my benefit and for anyone who believes. Wonderful. So where is He now? Well, Paul then says, Well, he ascended to the Father after 50 days spending time among his brothers. Many people saw him. He was raised up into glory. And there he is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Well, if he's not here, where we can't see him, what are we going to do? What does that mean? How does that affect us? Can you think about the questions that might have come to their minds? They're from a very, very God-filled society in terms of the numbers of God that they served. There were many, 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 many gods. They had a God for everything. Now we're saying, this is the truth. There's only one true God. All the, us, all the rest are idols. So you serve this one true God by believing in what Christ has done for you on the cross and has given you salvation because of what He has done. And if you believe that, you are saved. But you've got to live. Now, let me tell you how you are to live. 
And it tells us that Luke, that Paul rather, took three weeks going into the synagogue and telling them how they should live. Telling them all of the doctrines that they needed to know in order to accomplish that which they desired to do now. They wanted to live a life that would be pleasing to God. They wanted to learn more about this Jesus than they had heard in these first few hours. Paul sat with them and taught them and demonstrated over and over again for these three solid weeks. Now, they met in the synagogues only on one day a week, on the Sabbath day. So, technically, Paul really only had a Jewish and Gentile audience on that one day. Three days out of the time that he's known to have been there. Now, many people believe that Paul left Thessalonica immediately after. I don't really know that that's necessarily so. As I indicated earlier, we know of the fact that the Philippians sent at least twice resources, money that was collected for the purpose of helping Paul financially in his missionary journeys. They were sent first by Timothy and perhaps by another afterwards, but he received some kind of benefit from them. It was about a hundred miles from Philippi to Thessalonica, several days' journey, so he was there for a short while. We don't know exactly how long he was there. But we do know that he taught them a great deal. But what was his focus primarily? Well, I believe it was probably what we were just talking about. Jesus is in heaven. He's going to be king. Is he not? Well, yes, he is. Because that's precisely what they were told. Verse 5 says, But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Now, Jason is a convert. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rules of the city, crying out, saying, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. So Paul had been apparently saying to them, both Jew and Gentile, that Jesus is the king, and he is. Jesus is Lord, and he is. But Caesar was saying, Roman citizens must all of them agree that Caesar is Lord. And if they don't agree to that, if they don't voice that as their opinion, then they will face the law of Rome. For them to start saying that there's another king threatened Roman law. So you can see that there was probably a lot of turmoil that was taking place in the city of Thessalonica at the time. The Jews were instigators of that. But the Greeks, the Gentiles, began to side with those Jews and cause a great deal of trouble. But they were proclaiming Jesus as the king. That's because he was and is. Make no mistake, Caesar was the king of Rome. But you remember when Jesus was standing before Pilate 
And the Jews were accusing Jesus of saying that very thing. And Pilate came to Jesus and he said to him, Are you then a king? And Jesus' answer stunned him. Jesus said, I am. But then he adds, But my kingdom is not of this world. You don't have to worry about my being king, Pilate. I'm not taking anything away from Rome. I've got a different kingdom. It's not of this world. It is a very, very different kingdom indeed. But it is my kingdom, and I am its king. No questions. Jesus said, I am king. Paul agreed with Jesus, and so do I. He is king. He's king of kings and lord of lords. He's master of all. He is the Savior. He is the Redeemer. He is the one God and only God. He is my my king and yours. Paul agreed with this. That's what he was telling them. They needed to know if he's king, then why isn't he here? That's why Paul spent so much time in Thessalonica to explain to them what they ought to expect in serving this risen Savior, the Savior who has gone away somewhere. Of course, they know that He has given His Holy Spirit because they were born-again believers. They were receiving the Spirit of God at the moment of conversion. But they wanted to know more about if He's reigning, how are we to know? What's it supposed to be like? Well, Paul left Thessalonica in a hurry because he was forced to leave. He didn't finish the work that he had started. But he left Timothy there in Thessalonica. We're going to be told that he goes on from Thessalonica to Berea. He spends some time there in Berea and then gets probably aboard a ship and travels down to Athens. And then from Athens, after spending a short while there, he lands in Corinth, in the southernmost region of Achaia, which is now part of Greece, but it was two separate districts in the Roman Empire. There was Macedonia to the north and Achaia to the south. He's now in the southernmost portion of Achaia. And he's now wondering, how's it going in the Thessalonican church? He's waiting there in Athens, before he gets down to Corinth, for Titus and Timothy. Finally, they show up, and he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica with a letter. And that letter is what we have as First Thessalonians. I want to share some thoughts with you from that letter, because it's Paul's heart for the Thessalonians to know some things that he had to leave them and not really be able to expound on those things that he shared. But he had shared them. He just didn't complete the job as, he, as much as he had wanted to. Now in this first letter, he reminds them of what he had told them. I find it most interesting that in such a short period of time, whether it was three weeks or five or six perhaps weeks at the most, Paul gave them these doctrines that we are seeing in the letter of First Thessalonians. So turn there with me. First Thessalonians, page fourteen sixty. I'll let you take. I still hear pages rustling, so I know that you're still looking. First Thessalonians. 
Timothy now has come back to be with Paul and Silas. And he says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know, what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. You know, what he's saying here is, you guys have been so good at spreading the good news, it's gone everywhere. I'm hearing great reports of it reaching all kinds of different places in Macedonia and Achaia and elsewhere. You're doing a great work, Thessalonians. But they had questions. Timothy had probably come from there, assigned by the leaders in the church of Thessalonica to ask Paul some specific details about certain things that he had said while he was there in Thessalonica. And I'm impressed by this because the majority of his Questions that he answers in this book are questions about eschatology, the study of end times. Paul talked to them about the return of Christ over and over again. We find that to be evident in this letter. Every single chapter of each of the five chapters in the first letter of Thessalonians speak of the return of Christ. Verse 10 of chapter 1, To wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus Christ, who delivers us from the wrath to come. They're expecting His return. Chapter 2 ends with these wonderful words, For what is our hope, our joy, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? Paul is reminding them He's coming again. He over and over again had emphasized that fact. He's returning. Yes, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, but he is coming back. So they would ask, well, how long is it going to be? Where is he going to come? How is it going to happen? When is it going to happen? Paul has answered much of that. In chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, we find some of the most wonderful promises in the Word of God. And it's only here that we see the actual mention of what we call the rapture. In the Greek, it's known as harpazo. It's the Greek word for snatched away. It means being caught up, taken out quickly, snatched away. That's the word. We use the word rapture because in the Latin version of the New Testament, in that language, the word for the Greek word harpazo is rapturus. It means the same thing. It's snatching away. And we get our word, English word, rapture from that. So, this is what Paul is telling the Thessalonian church and us through this wonderful letter. He says in verse 4 of chapter 4, 
Each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, but like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So Paul is warning them and us. God has given us this information for a reason. He's given it to us so that we might know what to expect. And he goes on now then in verse 13, I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. One of the questions they had was, Oh, Paul, since you left here, some of our brothers in Christ have died. You've said that the Lord is returning. What about them? Have they no hope because they're no longer with us? That was apparently the question. Paul is answering that question with these words. It says in verse 14, If we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. They've gone to heaven with Christ now. When you die, you as a believer go into heaven. Your soul ascends into his presence. Your body goes in the grave. It's your body that goes to sleep or decays and falls into dust where it first began. But your soul is eternal and your soul goes into heaven. There you will be if you were to die before this event that he's about to proclaim. But there are those who will not die until these events take place. It tells us in verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. It came directly from Jesus to Paul. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who fall asleep. In other words, if they die, they go into the grave, they're going to be called up to be with Him first. That's the resurrection. They're going to be reunited with their glorified bodies. The graves will be opened, as we will see. But we who remain will be caught up with them. Verse 16, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord." Wherever He is from that point on, we will be with Him. That's the greatest promise. That's what Paul calls the blessed hope. It is a blessed hope for all believers that there is coming a day when we'll be reunited with all the beloved brothers and sisters who have gone on before us and we'll be together with them in heaven with Jesus. Seeing Him face to face. Knowing as we have been known. No more sorrow, no more pain, no more crying, no more sickness, no more lawyers and doctors, no more government except for one, His. That's the promise of the Word of God. And then in verse 18 of that great chapter 4 that we just were reading, it says this, read it carefully, Knowing all these things, therefore, that's what that word means. Therefore, because of this, as a result of what I have just spoken, know this, you should comfort one another 
with these words. That tells me that I don't have to worry about what's going on in the world today. That tells me that the Lord is in control. That tells me that I'm not going to have to deal with the things that are coming on this world that are going to plague all of society. And that's already begun, by the way. Society is being plagued. And by the way, they thought in Acts chapter 17 where we've been, they thought that Paul and Silas and his friends were turning the world upside down. Remember we read that in verse 6 of chapter 17. That's their accusation. These who have turned the world upside down have come here also. They weren't turning the world upside down. They were turning the world right side up. But from the world's perspective, they were doing just the opposite. But you know what the Word of God says? There's coming a day when they'll call good evil and evil good. That day is upon us. It was in His day as well, but I believe it's even more so in this present hour. And that's just one of the things that convinces me that the world is coming closer and closer to that final day. He's coming to judge the world, but He's not coming to judge us. Our judgment has already taken place by virtue of His death on the cross. He took the punishment that was our punishment, and it was nailed to that cross so that we wouldn't have to suffer the judgment of God. But those who are Christ's rejectors will suffer that judgment. It will come. They will stand before Him, or rather bow the knee before Him, because the Word of God tells us every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Whether you believe now or whether you don't, there is coming a day, one way or the other, where you will bow the knee and say, Jesus is Lord. I've chosen, and I believe all of you, at least most of you, have chosen the same, to accept what Christ has done so that we can say it now gladly, Jesus is Lord. But there are so many who have not chosen to follow these things that we have spoken of. And as a result, they will ultimately, if they continue in that rejection of Christ, stand before Him and be forced to say it. Jesus is Lord. Back in First Thessalonians, Chapter 3, verse 13, the last verse of that chapter says, So that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. That's you and me. There's coming a day when He will return. We will have been caught up to be with Him in the air. That period of seven years of tribulation will take place on the earth, but we're not going to be part of that. We'll be watching from the mezzanine, if you will. And we'll see it from that perspective but not being here present on the earth while it is taking place because He will have let us escape these things. You know that Jesus had said that to His disciples? Pray that you may escape these things that are coming upon the face of the earth. I'm an escapist. Jesus said that's what we should be. I hope you are too. I believe the rapture of the church will take place before the rapture, before the Seven years of tribulation. I believe we'll be celebrating a marriage feast in heaven together with all the saints while the hell is breaking loose upon this earth. But Paul says again, we're coming with him and he is going to come and he will set foot first on the Mount of Zion. And when he sets foot on the Mount of Zion, all will see him. And we're coming with him. 
and he's coming to reign. But there's a judgment for those who were there present on the earth at that time. Well, Paul doesn't talk about that here, but elsewhere he does. Everything that we know is based upon what the Word of God says. Everything that we teach is based upon what the Word of God teaches. One last couple of verses. In chapter 5, the ending, in verse 23 it says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your soul, spirit, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, every single chapter in the book of First Thessalonians speaks of His second coming, of His return for His saints. It doesn't get any press these days, but I want to tell you, this is the Word of God. And that's what people need to hear. They don't need to hear that Palestine is to have its own nation. They don't need to hear Palestine from the river to the sea. They need to hear Israel is God's people. And Israel is God's land. And Israel is where Jesus Christ will reign for a thousand years from the city of Jerusalem, seated on the throne of David. They need to hear these things. These are the truths that we believe and proclaim. Going back to the chapter 17 of the book of Acts. And we'll wrap this up shortly. We'll pick up in verse 8. We know that He is a King. We know that His Word has been proclaimed by Paul and those who followed with Him. Verse 8 says, They troubled the crowd, they, the Jews, who were trying to get the incitement of the crowd, and they were successful. They troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And so when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And again, we don't know how long he was there. But his work there was finished. So it says in verse 10, Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away. Timothy remains. They sent him away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. We're talking Jews here. They were more fair-minded. They were more willing to listen than the Jews. Remember in Thessalonica, only a few Jews believed. Here, they're more fair-minded. Why is he saying that? Because of this. They were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the Word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They received the Word that He proclaimed with gladness. It was exciting to them. They said, this is good stuff. Well, the Word of God says of itself, it's good news. And it is. How precious are the feet of those who bring good news. That's something that you and I are to do. Bring the good news to anyone who would hear. But these Bereans, Jews in particular... They heard that word. 
It excited them. They received it with all readiness. And then, not only did they just say, oh, that sounds really good, Paul, tell us more. They actually determined to prove what Paul was saying by studying the Word of God themselves. Paul had referred to perhaps Psalm 22. They went home and read it. They saw that Paul was right, that Psalm 22 speaks of a man being crucified about 1000 B.C. when it was written, at least a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. It is so plain and so very obvious. And then when you put together that fact with the very words of Jesus on the cross when he said, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then, Father, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the beginning words of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 talks about the fact that his hands and his feet would be pierced, that they would divide his garment and they would bet for it. All of that is written for them to see. This is plainly talking about Jesus Christ being crucified. But then in the middle of that wonderful Psalm 22, after all the things that are going on in David's mind, as he's by the Spirit of God relating these things, David changes course. He's asking the Lord to help him, to deliver him from the enemies. And then he says, you have answered me. Verse 21. And then from there on, it talks about the glory of the king. It's a remarkable passage of Scripture that speaks of his death and his reign. All in the same book. And then, perhaps, he went to Psalm 53 and talked about the fact that all we, like sheep, have gone astray. But the Lord, the Lord, Jehovah God, has determined that this one that he's speaking of must suffer. And it's spelled out so wonderfully well for anyone who would open their eyes to believe it. They heard Paul speak of these things. They went and they looked and they said, He's right. Why are people so reluctant to do the same in these hours, in these last days? Can they not understand? Will they not open their eyes to see? Will they not open their ears to hear? There's so precious little time left in this living for nothing other than the government that's going to give me everything I need. That's not going to be the case. They're going to die a pauper, not only from destitute lifestyles of sin and corruption, but they'll suffer an eternity without Him when they could have had the blessings that are given to us so wonderfully in this wonderful book that we have before us. People of God, let your light shine. It's time. It's time. We need to redeem the time. We need to be faithful. We need to be justifying our time here by serving Him. If we truly call Him our King, shouldn't we truly be serving our King? If we call Him Lord, shouldn't we be doing the things that He tells us to do? These are good questions to ask ourselves. Is it not so? Are we doing those things that God intends for us to do? Are we living our lives in a way that please Him? Are we serving Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength? Are we glorifying Him in everything we do and say? Are we sharing the gospel with others? Are we shining the light? Or are we hiding it under a bushel? Are we as salt that no longer has its savor? Or are we salt that dresses the wounds? 
Berean. Study the Word of God. Study to show yourself approved under God. Live for Him. Die for Him. Offer yourself up to Him as a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable to Him. It's a reasonable service. Well, I don't know if that's all that necessary. After all, I lead a good life. I'm a good person. After all, I'm here in church, aren't I? After all, I give money to the church every time I come in. After all, I talk to my neighbors and help them out. I shovel the driveway for them. I do good things. Doesn't that add up to anything? Are you kidding me? Do you think that seriously? You've got the wrong impression. You mean I don't have to do anything to earn my salvation? That's what this book says. I'm not the author of that. God is. And God's Word says, you can do nothing. That means you're not able to do anything. Is there any other way to say it? No. Do you believe it? I do. God says, without you, or without me, rather, I can, you can do nothing. That's Jesus' words. Without me, you can do nothing. With man, it's impossible to go through. I have, I have a needle. That's pretty difficult, isn't it, Jesus? What are you talking about? Is salvation that hard? Do I have to obey all the law? Oh, I've never killed anybody. Isn't that good enough? I've never stolen anything. I don't remember exactly if I did or not, but I'm saying that I didn't ever steal. I don't think I did. Well, maybe I did once or twice, but doesn't God forgive? If you stop playing games with God and thinking that you can get away with trying to justify your sin by saying, after all, I do this for God, or after all, I'm here, then you are losing everything for the sake of your own self-justifying means. And it goes nowhere, my friend. It goes nowhere but death, eternal death. There's only one way to God through Jesus Christ, through what He's accomplished. No, you don't have to do anything because that's what Jesus has done for you. Religion is, for the most part, a good thing. But it falls short with regard to salvation. All other religions say you must do things things in order to earn God's favor. Christianity is the only true religion because it alone says God has done it for you. His righteousness has simply replaced my unrighteous, filthy rags in exchange that I had nothing to do with. It was given freely by faith. And so it is with all of you. People of God, that's why we come here. That's why we worship the true and living God. Because of what He has accomplished on the cross for us. Not because of what we can do for Him, but because of what He has done for us. Let the world know. Paul was letting the people in Philippi know. And people got saved. He let the people in Thessalonica know. And people got saved. He let the people in Berea know. And people got saved. The simple truth is, when the Word of God is spoken, 
There are people out there who have ears to hear. And there still are today. However many they may be, I don't know. But I know that the time is short. And I also know that there is coming a day when the Lord God Almighty will say, My house is full. The fullness of Gentiles will have come in and the door will be shut and we'll be out of here. And then it will be too late for anyone who's left behind. Do you want to see our loved ones fall into that group? No. No. A thousand times no. Then speak out. Be clear. The Bible tells us that we are to be prepared to give an answer to those who ask of us what it is that we believe. My friends, we have the answers. And you may not think you know the Word well enough to be able to give an answer, but I want to submit to you that yes, you do. Those songs that we sang today, two out of them at least, were right straight from the book of Psalms. Psalm 95 and Psalm 5. You heard that today. There's many, many things that we sing as we worship together that are from the Word of God. And you know them. You know those songs well. You sing them without having to even look sometimes at the words on the wall because they're in your heart. And one of the wonderful things about the truth of God's Word is this. He allows us to hide His Word in our hearts that we might not sin against Him. My friends, let us serve Him with all our heart today and every day. And let us be faithful in these last hours to let the world know Because when the book is closed, it's closed.